Hello. So, we're coming to the end of a long, and as every single person in the world has noted, very unusual summer. These last few months have had a lot of impact in the way people behave, and watching it all unfold has been fascinating, to say the least. In my world, the world of podcasts, you've had chagrined hosts tell you that they are recording from under a blanket or in a closet. We've seen people in stores refuse to wear a piece of fabric on their faces because of freedom or tyranny or something. More importantly, though, there's also been people risking their health and even lives, marching in the street, pushing for real systemic change, trying to make this country live up to the promise of equality for all that it never has. Anyway, it's fair to say that we've all had to make adjustments, some minor, and unfortunately some not so much. The changes we are making range from the personal to having something thrust upon us. And in the spirit of Ira Glass speaking from under a pile of coats, that's what today's episode is about, the need for adjustment. So we'll start with a story from a friend of the podcast and a friend of mine, Jenny Lynn Ellis. The pandemic stirred some memories for her, and because she's a writer, she wrote about them. In her story, this adjustment is personal. The story is called The Last One. Back then, I lived adjacent to the HIV pandemic, as cells share membrane walls. In 1984, when I was 18 and flirting with a cocaine addiction, I had a lover with saucer pupils and long white fingers who tripped on acid through Thanksgiving dinner at my sister's house staring at brown gravy as it dripped over his mashed potatoes. In bed, a dreamy expression floated over his pale face as he described to me the incredible high of injecting heroin. He was telling me this just after we had sex without a condom. I think he had recently started sharing needles. That young lover, whose name I've forgotten, danced with me at a party in the basement of a run-down Victorian he rented with three other men on Capitol Hill. While we shimmied to Sheila E., an exultant grin bisected his face, and locks of lightning blonde hair shook into his eyes. I had briefly dated this man's roommate, a sweetly insecure blue-eyed boy who bussed tables at my first restaurant job in Denver. After work, that boy and I rode the number 15 bus down Colfax and had unremarkable sex on the double mattress that took up most of the floor space in my tiny bedroom on Monroe Street. As fall turned to winter, I lost interest in them both. I disappeared from that house where the bedroom door of the drug dealing roommate was sealed with a heavy padlock. At 18, I knew almost nothing about the burgeoning epidemic of my generation or about how close I would come to contracting HIV. I had probably heard the term gay cancer at a time in my life when simmering resentment of my imperfect parents blocked out much awareness of the wider world. 
The link between heterosexual transmission and intravenous drug use was just being understood in the mid-80s as new infections in the U.S. peaked. Oblivious, I graduated high school and took a one-way flight to Denver from Florida. My plastic pack of birth control pills tucked in the pocket of a hand-me-down suitcase. I count, but I can't, the times I could have been infected with HIV. Had I injected with that lover or the next one? Had I gone to just a few more parties or liked myself a little less? I could easily have gotten hooked on coke or heroin. But by luck or some genetic saving grace, I was pulled back from the edge just in time. I count, but I can't, how many of the generous gay men who made me welcome when I moved to Denver after high school must have died. Waiters who stood with me in the biting wind and told me to get a real coat to look out for myself. Strong men with gentle beauty who hugged me goodbye when I went on to the next restaurant job, to the next lost boyfriend. How many men whose tables I seated with customers must have faded away to nothing before tolerable antiretroviral drugs were finally developed? The server at the breakfast place where I was hostess for a few months and his girlfriend who wanted to marry him and was waiting out his fondness for sex with men. Did they survive? His face was marked by acne scars and hints of purplish bruises. Tall and patient, he would stand by the register with me as our shift ended, keeping me company as I tallied meal checks on a punch calculator and counted out my cash drawer. Uncountable moments of grace saved me from the self-destructive life I courted and shielded me from addiction to drugs or to risky sex. The kind words of the car salesman on Colfax, whose lot I walked past every day, soothed my loneliness. The crystalline beauty of distant mountains dusted with snow gave me hope. Luck and privilege combined to keep me HIV negative. My imperfect parents gave me love and also paid my rent one month. When I finally applied to college at 20, Pell Grants and student loans covered all of my tuition. I didn't fight racism to get my restaurant jobs. HIV went on to decimate communities of color long after it became a more manageable illness for those who could access care. A virus itself doesn't discriminate, even if healthcare systems do. With highly evolved opportunism, it simply proceeds through bloodstreams and airways, doing its work of replicating as efficiently as possible. No, a virus doesn't think about the next pandemic or the last one. Jenny Lynn Ellis is a writer based here in Denver, and you can read more of her writing at themoreiwrite.net. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. 
This next piece was created by some friends of mine for a thing called the 24-Hour Radio Race, run by KCRW in Los Angeles. This is a contest where people have 24 hours to create a four-minute piece around a theme. I did it a few years ago with my friend Ray Solomon. I put that piece in an episode of the show, if you're curious. Now, last year, in 2019, Ray, along with two other friends, Matthew Simonson and Barry Sykes, produced our next story. This story is all about an adjustment imposed by somebody else. It's called The Visit. This is one of the many times that I thanked um, my my breasts for being small because I took my bra off and I just prayed and I said, you know what, they're small enough. I don't think they can tell the difference. So when I decided to visit him, I, I made sure I planned my trip accordingly because there was only certain days that I could visit him. So it was a, a Friday. I had to get there really early. They start processing people at 7.30 in the morning. The drive was about an hour. Uh, it's a very easy drive. It's all highway. I get to the location. Security buzzes me in. I knew beforehand because they give you a sheet of paper, you know, what you should bring with you, what you shouldn't bring with you, how you should dress. I thought I had everything state issued ID or, or passport or something. You show up on, only on the days specified, depending on the category. No spaghetti strap shirt. No short shorts. Don't show any skin. And wear a bra. I go straight to the main gate and I show up and immediately from the get-go they look at me and they tell me I'm dressed wrong. The woman told me, you'll have to go change your top. Well, I have a sweater, is that okay? That's fine, but you'll have to zip it all the way up. Now it's time to go through the metal detector. And I pass through, and it beeps. The guard looks at me, and she says, what do you have? I don't have anything. Everything I have on me is in that little container you have next to you. Are you wearing a bra? Yes. You're going to have to take the underwire off of the bra you have on now. Well, how do I do that? How do I find something that you can make a hole in the bra and you could just take the underwire off? If I keep wasting time, I'm not going to get to see my nephew today. So I went back to my car and this is one of the many times that I thanked my my breasts for being small because I took my bra off and I said, you know what, they're small enough. I don't think they can tell the difference. When I went back in and I went through and I didn't beep, the security guard just looked at me. Do you have a bra? Yes. <laughs> I think she knew that I, I didn't, but she didn't give me grief about it. I guess in some ways I felt a little uh, ashamed and demeaned, but then I guess more than anything, and th these were the first words I told my nephew after I gave him a quick hug, I will never do this again. I will never visit a prison again. When I walked out, the sun was shining. I felt like, wow, this the sky is blue. I think, I think that was the first thing I, I kind of just looked up in the sky and, and took a deep breath and just kept walking. And I saw the the sky and 
it just was a very, it was beautiful to be outside of that place. This piece was produced by Barry, Matthew Simonson, and Ray Solomon as part of the 24-hour radio race from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. It was a nice black Victoria's Secret bra, you know, with cute little cheetah kind of straps. <laughs> a little lace, a little silk, a lot of silk. Um, and then, of course, the metal. Ray Solomon is a producer based here in Denver, Colorado. You can hear her stories on the podcast Range and Slope and also on the radio as a reporter for KUNC. Matthew Simonson is also a producer for Range and Slope, NPR's 1A podcast, and The Untold Story. Barry is a lover of podcasts who was born and raised in Denver. She runs the site Podcast in Color, the world's largest directory of podcasts made by people of color. You can find her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, I will include all of those links, you know, in the show notes like usual. Now, finally, in our show is a piece from audio producer Matteo Schimpf. This piece is about an adjustment that is a long time coming in this country. Matteo says his audio documentary was born out of exploring rhetorical parallels between the protests in 1968 and today in 2020. And without further ado, here it is. As young people, your lives have been greatly affected by the loss of these champions of freedom, of justice, of human dignity and peace. The shooting death of a 25-year-old unarmed man, Ahmaud Arbery. Breonna Taylor, Gregory who would have turned 27 today. Back in March, she was shot eight times while she this slept in her bed graphic image, a Minneapolis police officer putting a knee on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. In a power-drunk world where means become ends and violence becomes a favorite pastime, we are swiftly moving towards self-annihilation. Your generation must speak out with righteous indignation against the forces which are seeking to destroy us. Everybody has a right to survive. And if Black Panther Party want to run political candidate and hold their signs and keep guns in their arms to defend themselves from racist pig cops who shoot up women and murder black people in the black community, then let black people hold up the sign of the gun and use it to defend themselves. We are not now part of America. The young know that very well. We will not fight America's war. And my people, the people that I'm here representing today, the so-called Negroes, and that's all. Those of you who are white, you have many white leaders who can speak for you. You're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane. I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible. And it was a horrible thing to watch. And I have no doubt about it and you don't have any doubt about it either. You have many whites in power who have the billions and trillions of dollars 
to help you. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse you me, I saw the same in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another. But black people also need a spokesman. I am not the spokesman for the 22 million so-called black people. It's too big of a job for me to handle. George Floyd! George Floyd! George Floyd! George Floyd! George Floyd! The life of George Floyd. We're thankful for this tremendous man of God who is known as a gentle giant. His friends called him Big George. His family called him Perry by his middle name. I am George Floyd's aunt. The world knows George Floyd. I know Perry Jr. George Floyd was six foot seven inches tall. He meant somebody. His daughter said that when he lifted her on his shoulders, she felt like she could touch the sky. And the scripture says that when Jesus saw the place where Lazarus was, Jesus wept. And I can't help but think today that as we look around the globe, these days gone by from New Zealand to New York, from London to Dublin, from Belgium to Brooklyn, from Rhode Island to Rio de Janeiro, we are reminded that in the lives of those who walk these streets that Jesus wept. That this world is mourning and weeping because that is part of the human condition. It's a part of us connecting one with another that when you heard I am because I am, you are because you are, I am. And because Jesus wept, you and I, it doesn't hurt to recognize the fact that all of us who walk these streets have joined our hearts and minds in symbolic expression of religious discipline of warning. That as Muslims do, we've shrouded the body of George Floyd. As the Jewish faith does, we've sat shiva in these streets together. If we were Baptists, we have covered the streets in black from coast to coast. Philadelphia is the best. Philadelphia, what happened there is horrible. What's going on in Los Angeles? I have a friend in Los Angeles. They say all the I am your president of law and order. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard Insufficient America is founded upon we dominate the loss. It is the foundation of our prosperity, our freedom, and our very way of life. You have to arrest people, you have to try people, you have to put them in jail for 10 years, and you'll never see this stuff again. And you have to let them know Where that. there is no law, there is no opportunity. Where there is no justice, there is no liberty. Where there is no safety, there is no future. And it's a movement that if you don't put it down, it'll get worse and worse. We have to recognize who our major enemy is. The major enemy is not your brother, flesh of your flesh, and blood of your blood. The major enemy is the honky and his institutions of racism. People aren't calling him up. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. That's the major enemy. That is the major enemy. And whenever anybody prepares for revolutionary warfare, 
you concentrate on the major enemy. We're not strong enough to fight each other and also fight him. We will not fight each other today. Because regardless of our belief system, we've come together to declare that George Floyd's life matters, black lives matter, and history will record it until the end of time. He ordered that the tombstone or the grave be rolled away. And we will not be finished with this fight until the stones have been rolled away. We've come into these streets to do more than chant and cry. We're not interested in being the content for nightly newscasts. Our desire is the societal gravestones of black lives be rolled away. This is no time for business as usual. And strengthening the police is business as usual. The young understand this society better than their elders think, and better perhaps even than their elders themselves. They listen to the preachments of authority on behalf of order against violence, and they know that the order evoked has been the very order which has done systematic violence to the poor and the colored for centuries. Has not power heard the grim tidings the anguish from the ghettos, the rural slums, the battlefields abroad, the violence which periodically shocks us in a reflection of the violence to which we have become immune. It is a reflection of the violence our media celebrate. It is, I say, with all due respect to the office of the President of the United States, that even intense prayer and a new commission of notables will not ease the violence. The world is in dire need of a spiritual awakening which will make those eternal values of love, justice, mercy, and peace meaningful in our time. We may yet not only survive, we may triumph. Mateo is an associate producer at E-Town in Boulder and an independent audio producer. He's also 50% of the Denver-based video production team Paco a Paco and puts on a live acoustic music video series for front-range artists called Unwrapped. He likes things that sound weird, like most of the thoughts in his head. This is his first independently produced radio piece, but if you like Mezcal, he reported a story about its industrialization for the third season of America's Test Kitchen podcast, Proof. By the way, his piece includes sound from these sources, 
Black Panther Rally of Fire in 1969, Rat Brown and Stokely Carmichael in Oakland in 1968, Coretta Scott King Harvard Class Day speech in 1968, Trump speech from the Trump Tower in response to Charlottesville protests August 15, 2017, Trump Rose Garden speech June 1, 2020, Trump called the U.S. governors June 5, 2020, Reverend Dr. Eugene Downing, eulogy of George Floyd, June 4, 2020, and tape from Denver BLM protest, May 30th, 2020. And the music was from Blue Dot Sessions. And that's it for today's show. That's the end. I want to thank everyone involved for these amazing contributions. Low Orbit is produced by me, Josh Madison. If you want to submit something or just reach out and say hi and, I don't know, grab a cup of coffee or something, you can reach me at denverorbit at gmail.com or, you know, all of those social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram. And we will have a brand new episode for you in, you know, just a couple of weeks. <laughs>